You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Now, let's get started with tonight's session. I would like to pass over to our first presenter, Dr. David Patrick. It's wonderful to have you back again tonight. Please introduce yourself and let's get started. Um, thank, thanks, Simon. It's really good to be back with uh, our practitioner colleagues who've been at the coalface all along. You've accomplished a lot over the last two or three months. Um, I am an infectious disease physician who segued into public health practice quite early in my career, been at it for about uh, 29 years. I'm a professor at the School of uh, Population and Public Health, and I'm currently directing the research programs at BCCDC, which is run by my colleague, Dr. Gustafson, who will go next. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Rekha Gustafson. I am uh, a Deputy Provincial Health Officer as well as the lead for the BC Center for Disease Control. I started on February 3rd. Note to self, do not start a new public health job in the middle of a pandemic. But here we are, and I'm delighted to be here with you, and I will pass it on to my colleague, Dr. Ina Sakharov. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am Dr. Ina Sekerov. I'm one of the medical microbiologists at the BC Center for Disease Control Public Health Lab, and uh, very delighted to be here. And uh, with that, I will pass it on to Dr. Mark Lissichin. Hi there, Dr. Mark Lissichin, Deputy Chief uh, Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health, and I lead the team of um, nurses and public health inspectors and physicians that have managed the, all the cases, contacts, and outbreaks of uh, COVID-19 in the Vancouver Coastal Health region. We are absolutely thrilled to have all of you here. It seems to be a self-moderating group, so that's fantastic. Uh, but we were going to begin with an update of the epidemiology, so please go ahead and take it away. Um, hi, everyone. So I will I will start and then pass it on to Dr. Uh, Patrick and Dr. Sakharov. So uh, next slide, please. Um, we are starting with what the COVID-19 epidemic is teaching us. And the reason that we actually titled it that way is because in pandemic response, uh, by definition, we start the response in the absence of full understanding of the disease. And one of the hardest things that you may you probably find with your patients, and you certainly find in talking to our colleagues and even um, checking into what we're doing and why we're doing is to make sure that we're constantly incorporating what we learned into the response, make sure that it's appropriate, and uh, to be able to clearly communicate that some recommendations change because the evidence changes and our understanding changes and sometimes even our goals change. So what we know right now um, about COVID-19 in BC is that the number of cases in BC remains low, really quite low relative to just about any jurisdiction of the same size. Most cases are related to local acquisition through a known case or a cluster. And we'll, I'll provide some more data on that in a few moments. Long-term care facility outbreaks account for the majority of COVID-19 deaths in British Columbia. And BC, as I mentioned, continues to fare very well. Their symptom-based testing continues with good access, and Dr. Sakharov is going to talk about that. And we have some... Um, understanding about where we are with potential uh, future trends uh, based on our, on our, on our epidemi epidemiology as well as on our modeling. So uh, next slide, please. This graph shows you, this is the epidemic curve. I think everybody is now an expert in epidemic curve. And, um, and this is the epidemic curve showing COVID-19 in British Columbia since the beginning of, um, of disease activity. And I would like to point out a little bit about the colors on this graph. The red uh, uh, cases represent uh, travel-related cases. 
The dark blue cases uh, represent cases that are acquired locally through a known contact or cluster. Generally, that after investigation, you know where the infection came from. And the light blue represents community transmission where we were not able to identify the source of that infection. What you'll notice is that um, really the light blue, so commun true community transmission, has been a relative minority of cases in British Columbia. Overall, even at the, at the peak of the wave, uh, overall only about 19% of cases didn't have a source. So what, we, that, what that means for BC is that we've had a largely a traceable epidemic. Um, and in fact, the work that Dr. Lissichon mentioned about case-managed testing, case management, and contact tracing was really a very effective uh, measure in this, in this particular epidemic. You'll notice that there's been an increase in the number of cases in BC over the last little while, although the cases still remain low, and the majority, the overwhelming majority of the cases remain part of uh, what we call a cluster, so a traceable infection. Next slide, please. The epidemic curve is mirrored by our, our uh, uh, curve in ho on hospitalizations and critical care, um, though the shape will be slightly different because in, with COVID-19, the length of hospitalization is quite uh, long. Um, and again, but it is mirroring the shape that there was a peak in, um, in uh, uh, April, which was several weeks past the uh, um, cases, the peak in, in actual cases. Then there was a, a, a time of extremely low hospitalization, and it has increased a little bit, but it remains low and stable. Next slide, please. Um, in our, uh, although cases, so actual diagnoses are now um, about evenly divided between men and women, we do find that COVID-19 disproportionately causes severe disease in men. So uh, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and deaths are all higher in men than in women. Next slide, please. Um, and this is this I think is one of the most important slides because we do have to look at who is affected by COVID-19. So I mentioned before uh, we don't have cases here, but really the peak number of cases is in the adult years, um, and hospitalizations start to skew skew toward the older ages. You'll see the highest number of hospitalizations are uh, uh, between um, ages of 70 and 79. Uh, similarly to ICU admissions, and then deaths are really very sharply skewed toward the older ages. In fact, in, in British Columbia, the median age of death is 85, and if you look at um, deaths throughout Canada, 90% of, uh, of deaths throughout Canada um, are in those over 70. Next slide, please. As I mentioned before, the vast majority of deaths in British Columbia are related to long-term care facilities, and that, that is because we know that the people who are most vulnerable are people who are elderly and have uh, chronic conditions, and we do know that long-term care facilities are vulnerable to outbreaks of, of COVID-19. Next slide, please. And I'm going to here hand it over to Dr. Patrick. Thank you, Reka. Um, so this by now is a familiar comparison of the epidemic curve in BC with other jurisdictions, and of course you've seen comparisons with countries all over the world. This is a comparison with our neighbors, and you can see that we track fairly closely with Alberta and have done well uh, next to other jurisdictions. But there, we are watching a fairly serious concern with a little bit of a rebound and an uptick in many of the adjacent um, states, our neighbors. Um, you can also you know, make these comparisons with uh, countries in Europe and even against countries that have done pretty well. We've held our own so far. Okay, next slide. 
Um, so this is just, um, you know, our best attempt with modeling to sort of draw where we're at. And you can see the cases going up and down. And you can begin to sort of take a look at how things might be projected out. These models are highly dependent upon um, uh, the, the numbers of cases that you have. So right now, we, we consider there's a fair amount of uncertainty as to whether we'll stay flat, um, grow a little bit. But we'll have time to observe that uh, over time. Um, but uh, it, this is influenced quite a bit by just the recent uptick in cases, which may be yet again a cluster event, as you may have heard. Next slide. So you also know that we've been talking about the reproductive number. Um, any number above one uh, of, you know, the average number of secondary cases from a case allows for epidemic growth. And what happened with lockdown in March was that our reproductive number fell from somewhere between two and three to probably around 0.5 or as low as, uh, as 0.5. It was that drop in the reproductive number that flattened the curve, in, in essence. And we also know that there are different ways to drop a reproductive number for an infectious disease. We can do it with um, um, uh, herd immunity brought about by vaccine. Um, we're nowhere near, as you know, herd immunity uh, brought about by natural infection. Um, we can do it by reducing the number of contacts that we have, but um, obviously we can't sustain that very long and let kids go to school and keep the economy running. So it's very important to remember that we can reduce it by other means, which is reducing the risk of infection with each of the contacts that we have. So as we open up the economy, we need to remind people about the importance of distancing when possible, um, good hygiene, and other measures. So what do we now know that we didn't a few months ago to follow up on Reka's, you know, we, this is a learning exercise as we go along. Um, we, are, we now know that the clinical and epidemiological evidence strongly support that this is an infection transmitted by close prolonged contact, uh, droplet transmission. You will see a physicist that will argue that you can have small particles that might travel a little bit further, but what we care about is the clinical experience and the epidemiological experience with transmission, which is pointing strongly to a droplet infection. And not only that, one where a little bit of passing contact is relatively unimportant compared to close contacts in the household or over a prolonged meal, for example. We also know, and we didn't quite know in the early days um, with the Wuhan uh, outbreak, that about eight out, eight out of 10 people get mild self-limited illness along the way. So it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a minority of infected people that we have to worry about, but with enough infections in the population that can still burden our healthcare system. Reka spoke about the age distribution on the extreme upper end. But the other thing is that we are seeing that children seem to be less likely to be infected, less likely to transmit if they are infected, and, uh, and, and don't seem to have uh, bad outcomes as often as you, as you might think. Children's Hospital had one or two admissions over the entire course, and those kids were not, um, uh, were not critically ill. And biologically, um, children are seen on average to express the ACE2 receptor that binds the virus uh, less frequently than uh, teens and less frequently than adults. We've also uh, learned that there are some effective control measures, and we've learned this from looking at the international experience, but also our own. We know that widespread low-threshold testing is helpful, and Dr. Sakharov will talk more about that. We know that early isolation of those infected with COVID-19 is critical, and that early identification and quarantine of 
uh, high proportion of contacts is important. So we're rooting for Mark's program every day uh, that he, he continues to have, you know, that excellent uptake of contacts and that timely um, isolation of them. We, um, we know that we need to protect the most vulnerable in, in society. That's the, the most important job we can do, and we're learning some lessons about that in long-term care and elsewhere. Frequent hand hygiene works, avoiding prolonged contact with large numbers of people, so avoiding crowds is important. And where we maybe need, need a lot of indoor sort of crowded interaction for one reason or another, non-surgical masks in that setting, there is growing evidence epidemiologically that uh, that can contribute to, um, to control, among other measures. Okay. And with that, I'll pass it over to Ina. Thank you, David. Uh, so from the lab point of view, uh, we know that uh, PCR testing, uh, the, for PCR testing, the positivity rate remains fairly low. And uh, the turnaround time uh, remains good as well at uh, under 24 hours. You can see that uh, at the peak of positivity, we had about 4.5% positive specimens. Uh, and um, that was during the time when um, testing was uh, you know, more restrictive. Uh, later on, testing uh, became liberalized, and uh, the positivity rate actually dropped. Uh, currently, uh, it's uh, about 1%. And uh, that points to the fact that even though uh, you know, we are testing many people. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we were missing, you know, many people previously by PCR. You know, the, uh, you know, the positivity is actually truly low. Uh, next slide, please. And um, in terms of serological testing, I know that many people uh, are quite interested uh, in knowing exactly when that's going to be available and how that's going to be available. So, so far from the validations that have been performed for serological testing at the BCCDC laboratory as well as a number of other laboratories uh, in DC, we can see that uh, sensitivity of tests has definitely improved at over 14 days post-symptom uh, post onset, you know, you know, even better at three weeks post-symptom onset. And that, of course, points to the fact that um, it's uh, unlikely that uh, you will be able to pick up a significant number of acute infections, uh, you know, acute infections being within about a week of symptom onset. So that uh, means that serological testing, uh, its main utility is going to be in population-based studies, such as seroprevalence studies. Um, there is very little evidence right now that uh, it will have uh, a lot of clinical utility. So we're not really planning for routine clinical use for it. And um, in some rare cases, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, it, it does uh, have a role in, uh, you know, occasional cases, such as, for example, the multi system inflammatory sy uh, syndrome in children. In those scenarios, uh, you know, if uh, testing does seem to be warranted, it's going to be, uh, you know, by consultation uh, with medical microbiologists in your local lab or your uh, medical health officer. And um, another thing to note is that currently there is little evidence on the longevity of the humoral response um, or whether or not it actually offers protection from reinfection. Uh, there are some studies in uh, animals, in macaques, that uh, seem to point that way, but uh, very, little, uh, very few studies in humans over any prolonged period of time. I mean, of course, this is a relatively new infection in our population, so it's kind of hard to have these studies at this point in time, and uh, we are planning to you know, conduct them and uh, figure this out, but right now we really don't know how long the humoral response lasts or how protective it is. Over to you, Simon. Fantastic. So, 
we have got uh, questions pouring in. We've got now about 35 questions. And we've uh, got a large number of primary care providers who are identifying themselves as that being their profession. So um, right off the bat, let's start with that kind of a category of questions. And, and I'm not going to pick the, the top questions particularly. I'll, I'll try and stick with this theme for now. So um, a nice broad question. I'll, I'll start with you, Dr. Gustafson. Um, just in broad strokes, how should primary care be preparing for the second wave? Um, so that's a great question. And in particular, um, I'm going to question that notion of the second wave. Uh, one of the things that I, we've learned about COVID-19 is that um, it's, a, um, it's now a, an established human pathogen. And it's likely going to be increasing and decreasing in various parts of the province at different times. I think one of the most important ways to prepare is to make sure that you have a reliable source of local epidemiology. So good connection with your medical health officer, good connection with um, keep up with the epidemiology and understand your local epidemiology as well as possible. And that's to make sure that um, that uh, you you have a sense of uh, of um, of what is the likelihood of the diagnosis. Um, so I think that's going to be really important because we use very blunt instruments to control the epidemic the first time around, and those uh, blunt instruments aren't really sustainable. So we're probably going to have to do more precision, uh, uh, more precision um, uh, in interventions in the future. You certainly want to make sure that you're prepared to test your patients or know where they can go to be tested, um, and, and we really do encourage low threshold testing for COVID-19. Uh, uh, testing and, and, and contact tracing is such an important part of control that we want to make sure you, you, you're able to do that. Um, a lot of people are using telehealth right now, and then over time they're going to be returning to the office, but maintaining some of those skills so that you can, you can change is, should there be increased activity will be important. And then the basics of infection control, so make sure that you, you have good hand hygiene, that you're um, you have signage in your clinic to, so that that uh, that uh, uh, patients can self-isolate. That make sure that you have processes in place that patients with respiratory infections can identify themselves ahead of time and consider whether they need to come in. Um, I think are some of the um, sort of the, some of the basics. And then um, and then I think one of the things that we all need to do, which probably need we need to think through in all of our workplaces is that staying home when you're sick is one of the most important ways of controlling this infection. And it's not really part of our culture or part of our processes, but thinking through in your offices, in your workplaces, who's going to cover you if you can't come into work? Are your, are your staff able to stay at home when they need to? And do you have uh, some of the protective uh, measures in place between your front staff and your uh, patients to make sure that you reduce transmission. Those are the things I can think of, but um, I'm wondering if others have anything to add. Well, what, what I would add is a lot of the things you described were um, what should be in a COVID safety plan. And, you know, the, there's, a, there's an order out there right now for all employers to come up with COVID safety plans, and that in, includes to, you know, primary care physicians that are running offices and, and things like that. And so, you know, now is the time to come up with COVID safety plans. And it's also the time to practice them, I would say, because we have low levels of community transmission. So figure out what the processes should be and, you know, start seeing clients right now and find out, do the processes work for you right now? Do they work for your office? Are you managing uh, to, to have, you know, the, the patients uh, 
physically distance in the waiting room and coming in at the right time and are you able to see them and use personal protective equipment and things like that. I think it's the time to, to try those procedures now, sort of like we asked the schools to do. We asked kids to go back to school right now with those safety plans in place so that they'd be ready in, in the fall uh, to, to really do that potentially when there's actually more transmission happening. So that, that's what I would encourage everyone to do is really work on those COVID safety plans because it's, it's everybody imp implementing those COVID safety plans that we hope is going to control the second or third or fourth waves that happen and they'll just come in sort of slowly like we're seeing now if everybody um, has those plans in place. What's really cool uh, to see is how the conversations changed over two or three months. When we were having this conversation with uh, a lot of practitioners um, a few months ago, everybody jumped straight to what about the personal protective equipment? What kind of mask should I be using? And uh, as Rika and Mark are pointing out, it's really that administrative control you've got in your office of who comes in and whether sick patients can divert and that sort of thing. And um, and, and, and even even perhaps the engineering layout of how you would see people who uh, who need to be seen who uh, who may be at risk. Um, so it, it, what's really interesting to me is talking to docs. They're talking about that far more now than they were a few months ago, and that's appropriate because the PPE are important, but they're the last thing on your checklist, not the first one. And so there's a couple of related questions. And so um, I remember in the last time we did a webinar like this, and this time as well, there's some specific questions about primary care, um, PAP tests immunizations. Are these the kinds of things, uh, Dr. Gustafson, that family doctors should be doing in their offices right now? Uh, as uh, Dr. Gustafson uh, mentioned, yes, yes, they are. These are really important activities. They are, we need to return to our screening programs. You need to return to all of our preventive programs. Uh, one of the things we want to do with our response, of course, is first do no harm. We want to make sure that, that we don't have, um, that we meet the needs of the patient's and, and, and as Dr. Lassishman pointed out, learn how to do so. Um, we are going to be living with this virus for a long time. Um, and, uh, and while I'm hopeful about the vaccine, the, how, how realistic is a widespread vaccine in, in the short term, I, 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 it's not coming anytime soon, I think, at the levels that we have been talking about. Would love to be proven wrong. So um, absolutely, those preventive services need to return. You need to learn how and, and to really learn how to do those and, and be comfortable with them in the context of COVID because while there will be peaks and troughs, um, it is now an established human pathogen. Uh, we're, we're definitely organizing catch-up for all our immunization programs, so we feel now is the time uh, to offer all the immunizations that we weren't able to offer during the that first wave of the pandemic, and so we want to try to get, get them in now over the summer. And, uh, and then be able to continue to give them because like Rick says, this is gonna be more of a, a marathon than a sprint. And a, a related question is, is how are we gonna cope with this in primary care in the fall when, when there's flu going around, when there's upper respiratory infections going around? So do all these patients, are they gonna need to swab all of them in the fall? Are we, are we still looking, are we missing strep throat is, is, is a related question in on that one. Um, Mark, do you wanna take that one to start? Yeah, I think I think the fall and you know cold and flu season is going to be complicated this year. Um, you know, we want to make sure people are immunized against influenza, and we've ordered more immun you know influenza vaccine for the province to make sure that people are immunized because other respiratory viruses will you know cloud the picture, will make it more difficult. But 
We really don't know whether when the cold and flu season is that when we're going to see another surge of cases or is it not? And so it's really going to depend on what the epidemiology shows at that time, you know, how we respond to that. But I do think that a lot of COVID testing is going to be necessary. Currently, we have a lot of capacity, and that's been one of the requirements for, you know, moving through our, the phases of our restart plan. We had to have good contact tracing capacity. We had to have good testing capacity. We have that now, and it should be in place for the fall. And um, so I, I think people will need to get a lot of testing done, and uh, we have the capacity to do it now. But, you know, how critical that testing is will depend on how much COVID is actually circulating in conjunction with influenza and the other viruses. Nina, what's the conversation at the lab about preparing for the fall? So all of the labs in BC are working very hard to try and uh, maximize their capacity for testing, not just for COVID, as well as for all of the other respiratory uh, viruses, uh, bacteria, you know, all of the other pathogens. And, uh, you know, for COVID, there is definitely very good capacity in all of the labs. Uh, right now, there is, uh, you know, room there, uh, you know, so we will be able to um, scale up, uh, should that be necessary, uh, in the fall. Uh, there is also, of course, the question of other viruses and uh, how prevalent they're going to be and how much they're going to be clouding the picture. So um, looking at Australia right now, Australia, you know, being in the other hemisphere, normally they would be experiencing their flu season right now. And um, it seems to that uh, for them at least, uh, the flu didn't seem to surge up as much as it normally would. And, uh, you know, it is quite possible, of course, expected, in fact, that uh, all, of the, uh, all of the measures that are being put in place to control COVID spread, they will also control uh, for spread of other pathogens. And uh, we might not, in fact, see uh, also as much flu or other common cold viruses circulating. Uh, so, you know, whether or not that's going to confound the picture is possible to what extent, uh, you know, that will remain to be seen. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is that uh, while we do prepare to test uh, everyone who meets the testing criteria for COVID, uh, we may have to modify uh, our, I guess, uh, like usual algorithms uh, for testing for other respiratory pathogens. So, you know, we'll still obviously test everyone uh, for whom it's necessary and uh, whose care will be uh, affected by the test results, but it may be a slightly different approach than it used to be before. And on, on that note, Dr. Sekharov, um, the next top question is about the testing. Could you please review the false positive and false negative testing rates? What information do you have on that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so in answering that, uh, I will probably talk about the false negatives first. Uh, you know, and you know, for both false negatives and false, uh, false positives, there are two aspects to that question. So one aspect is... Uh, what is the analytical false negative or false positive? That means that, you know, what is the chance that uh, if, if a sample actually had the virus in it, uh, what is the chance that the lab, uh, lab test did not pick up that virus? Or if a sample did not have a virus in it, what is the chance that the lab would call the sample positive? And that's one thing. A separate thing is the clinical uh, false negative or false positive. So for uh, any given patient, uh, you know, if they are infected, uh, they will be shedding, uh, you know, their virus uh, in some particular amount. And uh, that uh, level of shedding will change over the course of their illness. And, uh, you know, for someone who only has upper respiratory symptoms, likely they will only shed in their upper respiratory tract or predominantly shed in their upper respiratory tract. 
but for someone who has uh, mostly a low respiratory tract syndrome, they uh, are more likely to actually have the virus, you know, like in their uh, sputum, uh, in their bronchial lavage, if they do go to bronchoscopy. And uh, then the question becomes, if someone collects a sample on a given patient, what is the chance that that sample actually collected the virus if the virus was present in the patient? And uh, what we see is that um, if, if people are being tested, uh, you know, within the first week of their symptom onset, that's the time when their viral load seems to be particularly high um, in their uh, upper respiratory tract, and uh, the chance of uh, a false uh, negative is, uh, you know, relatively low uh, from uh, both the clinical and, and the analytical point of view. From the analytical point of view, if the virus is there, our assays are extremely sensitive, and they're able to pick up even very small, minute amounts of viruses. So if the virus is there, you know, you'll, 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 you'll see it, you'll get it. Um, if someone actually presents maybe too late in the course of their illness or perhaps, uh, you know, very, very early on, you know, even before actually becoming truly symptomatic, in that case, the sample that was collected might not have, you know, sufficient amount of virus, and that may result in a clinical false negative potentially. And that is why we do recommend that if someone has a, you know, lower respiratory tract infection, that uh, a lower respiratory tract sample should be collected to maximize sensitivity. Um, now, for the question of false positives, um, that, uh, you know, that, that kind of relates, I guess, again, you know, you know, a little bit to the clinical, a little bit to the analytical uh, components of it. And um, right now, uh, when the prevalence of this virus is extremely, extremely low in our population, um, that, of course, you know, kind of decreases the predictive value of any positive test results. For uh, PCR tests, they are, you know, quite specific and uh, also quite sensitive, and um, they, um, you know, it, it, they, they have the capacity to pick up a minute amount of viruses, uh, even in people who are asymptomatic, uh, and um, sometimes that, you know, may, that may present, I guess, uh, as a false positive result. You know, if someone who presented to here did not actually have a whole lot of symptoms, was tested for some reason, you know, you know, there may be different reasons for that. Uh, and then the test is positive, and that kind of raises concerns as to whether or not this is truly a positive test. Uh, so it's, you know, most likely it is. But, uh, you know, for every test, you know, like it's never 100% sensitive, 100% specific. So with low prevalence rates, you know, like there may be some chance of, you know, perhaps you know, inadvertent contamination at some point in sample collection or processing or something along those lines. And, uh, you know, th that may have, uh, you know, like a very, very rare event of uh, an analytical false positive. But uh, we do monitor uh, our tests very closely in all of the labs in BC and, you know, in Canada and, uh, you know, definitely watch out for those types of events. So th they will be exceedingly rare and the rates will be exceedingly low. I think of it um, very simply with the serological tests because I think it's important, you know, uh, even if they're 99% specific, um, you heard over the last day or two that the seroprevalence of exposed people in BC by validated methods is only half a percent. Um, so that means that for if we just test all comers, for every true positive with antibody, we'll have two false positives. And so that is why nobody is thinking about using the serological tests to provide a badge of immunity to go back to work, 
um, or even for individual diagnosis outside of somebody who's had a very, very typical infection and missed NAP testing early on. At the present time, the, the, the focus tends to be to think about them as tools to understand the epidemiology, but we'll stay tuned for improvements in the test. And on that note, um, would you be willing to go into a little bit more detail? Um, maybe uh, we'll start with you again, Dr. Gustafson, about why aren't we doing testing on asymptomatic patients? What are the downfalls? So, uh, so, and, and I'm going to follow up on Dr. Sakura. One, one of the biggest reasons is that that asymptomatic patients um, have um, basically we we are um, the sensitivity of the test uh, really declines in asymptomatic patients and that we are just not finding positives this way. So in other words, there's been a, there's um, the asymptomatic testing is something that very unfortunately has been seen as an approach to, uh, as a preventive approach in some parts of the world and they've actually done it. Fortunately for us, data comes out of those situations and in those situations, the, uh, 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 the, the, Ability to ident correctly identify someone is um, is very very low, with a very low prevalence in the population. Unless you have some indication that you should be testing the person, the chances of you just randomly finding um, uh, uh, COVID nineteen is very very small. And then back a little bit to what Dr. Patrick was saying that that with very very low prevalence, um, then the then the chances of a positive actually being a false positive goes up. So that would be the reason that why um, we wouldn't recommend asymptomatic testing. And then the other reason we would not recommend asymptomatic testing is that what does that test tell you? Um, there are very few situations where, where um, knowing that somebody's negative in that moment um, is actually a meaningful clinical test. What is it that you're trying to assess by testing someone who has no symptoms whatsoever? Um, and what we are finding is that that uh, when people are requesting testing for an asymptomatic reason, what they're really trying to determine is, is, is this person free of COVID-19? And you actually don't know that. They could be incubating it. They could be negative now. They could be positive literally an hour from now. Um, so both the performance of the test but the clinical utility of the exercise is quite questionable. I don't know if other people can say that a little bit more scientifically than I just did. No, I agree. You know, uh, just you know, as we just discussed with the you know sensitivity, specificity, predictive values. If you uh, sample a patient who does not actually have any symptoms, there is uh, a high chance that uh, you will not actually collect a sample that contains the virus, even if the virus is present somewhere in this patient. So, um, you know, like a negative test in a given point in time in an asymptomatic person will have very little kind of you know. Very little informative value. We also, oh, we also feel it sends a confusing message to patients um, because what's probably more important than asymptomatic transmission is pre-symptomatic transmission. And so if somebody doesn't have any symptoms and you do a test and it's negative, and in the following days they actually develop very mild symptoms, they're actually quite likely to think those are not COVID-related because they've had a negative COVID test, when in fact now they're in a situation where they're actually quite capable of transmitting COVID and, and very likely to, and because they're mildly symptomatic, they'll be out in public and things like that. And so we think it's a very kind of dangerous strategy for, for the public because they don't understand uh, how to interpret the results. 
Uh, and like Rekha said, it only means at that moment they weren't, you weren't able to, to you know, culture the, or to detect the, the virus, but you, it could be incubating and it could come, you know, an hour later, a day later, two days later. So in a similar vein, uh, the, the top question right now is about the antibodies, but particularly pertaining to the vaccine. So Dr. Patrick, why don't we start with you re regarding this. With some studies providing data that suggests detectable antibodies may only persist for a few months after clinical illness with COVID-19, what implication does that have for the vaccine and does the kind of vaccine play into that? Um, I think that we're still very early in learning about the nature and effect um, and, and duration of an effective immune response to COVID-19. And we've only had six months of possible follow-up uh, at all. We don't know if, for example, somebody who has had antibody and then sees it disappear, if it would be regenerated from, uh, from plasma cells on rechallenge. That's not uh, been part of our natural experience because we haven't had a bunch of reinfection. So um, what's happened with the vaccine uh, trials is that, as you know, the phase one work and the phase two work, which is looking at safety and immunogenicity, uh, has been moving pretty fast. And then there are 150 vaccine candidates around the world. Two of them are sort of front runners at the moment. One of them is an mRNA vaccine um, and another is an adenovirus vector vaccine um, from Oxford. And, um, and those uh, phase two results are showing that these are immunogenic most of the time and that the antibodies that are produced in vitro are neutralizing to the virus. So that means they can neutralize, stop growth of the virus in tissue culture, which is usually a pretty good correlate of immunity. Um, so that's good. It indicates that we may be able to engender that and then with people's knowledge of vaccine design and adjuvants, maybe we can even extend the natural immune response. But the bottom line is that until we see phase three studies, we won't know if these are protective in an important way. And we also won't know another important thing, whether we can accidentally uh, engender worsening of the disease by triggering the immune system in the wrong way. So you know, we have to be very careful about that because that's been observed in a few coronavirus vaccine attempts in the past. Very good. So let's move on to the next. You just went off mic, Simon. So there's a couple of questions related to vaccine as well. So why don't I um, go through and, and search? I, I guess the, the, the next one with the most number of votes is how many months is the phase three going to be and how quickly do you think they're going to blast through that? Nobody has a crystal ball. It depends where in the world um, that's done. The phase one and two can be done quickly, but we're talking about thousands of patients for a phase three. So that will have to be um, deployed um, in countries which are not having good control. So you know, United States, Brazil, Russia, um, uh, those, are, those are possibilities. I think we'd be crystal balling it to say when it could be done, but I think extraordinary efforts are happening to get um, recruitment going. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw preliminary results inside six, or if not um, 12 months that, that way. But um, there are obviously you know, a dozen basic vaccine designs being tried, and we're not sure whether the first one off, off trials is going to be working or not. I think the interesting question is, uh, you know, uh, how we would use a vaccine um, if it became uh, available. And that, too, will depend on um, who it protects best. 
So just a reminder to everyone watching that uh, if you go to the question and answer, answer page on Slido, you can go through and see the questions coming in and you can vote on the ones that you want to see. So there's very few votes on the bottom questions right now. So uh, we'll continue with the most popular questions. There's two questions about airline travel as people are seeing more and more planes above our heads. So maybe I'll, I'll toss this one uh, to, to Dr. Lecision to start here. Um, what are the recommendations for airline travel and are you seeing people landing on our doorstep uh, with transmission from airline travel? Uh, airline travel. I mean, um, you, you know, people are still recommended only to do kind of non-essential travel, um, except I guess within BC, that's our current recommendation. And so hopefully then you wouldn't need to use airline travel. Um, uh, I think airline travel is somewhat risky. Um, now people are sat quite close together uh, on planes. Uh, people are wearing masks, but um, you know, there's a lot of commonly touched surfaces on planes. And so, you know, I had to contemplate whether I wanted to go to Ontario <laughs> for a vacation this summer, and I decided it wasn't the time to go on commercial flights. Um, so I think airline travel is risky. We do continue to see travel-related cases, but we can't know whether the cases acquired their infection as a result of travel or because they're coming from, you know, higher incidence areas in Canada. Uh, like Ontario or, or things like that. So, um, you know, travel still continues to be a concern here, and we do continue to need people to isolate when they arrive here because um, we are still identifying cases that way. All right, and seeing no one else in the panel jumping on that one, let's uh, change gears again. So then the top question right now, can you comment on mandatory indoor masking policy? Perhaps this is best for Dr. Gustafson to start. Um, it's coming into effect elsewhere. We're seeing stores, we're seeing provinces, we're seeing cities do it. And uh, where is BC heading in this direction? Are, are we all going to be wearing masks indoors soon? So um, I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of the mandatory policies or masking policies are, are in two situations. One where uh, a mun municipality or, or a, a government has decided to make that recommendation. And it's, it's probably quite a, a somewhat of a political decision because it's a very visible thing that looks like you're doing something. Um, and, and I think, and that's, that, that is um, not to imply that it, there aren't situations where it may be required or maybe of uh, additional benefit. I think the other situations where you see it is where there is widespread community transmission. And when there is widespread community transmission, then any marginal benefit that masking can provide is worth trying. There is also some epidemiological or called ecological evidence coming into uh, that, that is emerging that shows that areas that have had um, either mandatory or recommended masking um, have uh, it appears that it has had some effect on, on community-level transmission. So you can't separate this from um, other interventions that happen in those places. So where we are in British Columbia, and I actually support this, and I hope we, we have the courage of our convictions to stay with that, is that uh, masking, it, uh, we, wearing a non-surgical mask is thought to provide an additional layer of protection in situations where you um, are likely to be in close, prolonged contact with people who you don't know, a large number of them, and that there could be, there could be unnecessary crowding. And, that, and, and then it may provide you with an additional layer of protection. But I would like to go back to the fact that overall in British Columbia, 
There is very little community transmission right now. And therefore, that additional layer of protection is likely not going to be not necessarily at large in the community right now. So my, my thought about uh, masking, and I think many people agree with it, is that it is a tool in our toolbox that is appropriate in truly high-risk situations, potentially on transit when there's widespread community transmission or where there is um, uh, like a, a, a crowding in the context of widespread community transmission. In general, mandatory masking, um, I think we have to think through about the potential harms. Uh, there are theoretical risks of self-contamination. Uh, self and also mandatory masking policies in certain situations, say in transit, we need to think through about who, 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 is, who, is, who does that harm. In other words, is there health equity? Are the people who are most reliant on masks required? Um, are they able to wear masks? So that's our current policy uh, framework in um, British Columbia. There's certainly certain situations even right now where masking is, is required and recommended. So for example, personal service establishments, so where you may have, um, you may, you may have a close prolonged contact with somebody you don't know. Um, I don't know if Mark or David have anything to add to that. Well, I, I just wanted to clarify because we, we do get a lot of questions about the mask, the current mask recommendations for BC, which, which Rika described as in these uncontrolled public environments where you're basically, you might, be interacting very closely with strangers. And so that's not the case in environments like schools or workplaces no, no. Or, or places that have COVID safety plans in place, uh, that have other measures in place to protect you from COVID transmission, things like sick policies and, and, and other you know, engineering controls and things like that. So um, you know, the, the current recommendation around masks is around these uncontrolled public environments. Mm -hmm. and, it's not for coworkers working together, or um, you know, people getting on the elevator together and things like that. That's that, that's not what we intended for. I'm I'm really glad you pointed that out because I think it truly is um, an addition potential additional layer of protection in those uncontrolled situations. And we know that the other methods are all the things that we want to rely on, um, like just staying home when you're sick, washing your hands, and and, um, and also to really think through that notion of the uncontrolled, in other words, people who aren't part of your cohort. And a classroom is people that get together every day. Um, that's not an uncontrolled situation. You know who these kids are, though. you know who those other students are, you could follow them up if there's a case. So there's, um, the, there are many, many superior layers of protection um, in those situations. And I guess the um, the current epidemiology, you, you might you might wonder about whether it would help in uh, in a very crowded, out of control club. But then clubs shouldn't be too crowded and out of control under the current regulations. All right. So um, for the next question, um, I, let's let's ask Dr. Lecision for uh, for your take on this one. Some patients with asthma working at long-term care are asking to go on leave to be off work because. Uh, and the quote in the question, asthmatics tend to have more serious disease if they contract COVID-19. So is that true? And, and how, how would you recommend that family doctors, primary care providers deal with these kinds of requests for time off of work? Yeah, I think it's challenging and it does have to be individualized for the patient. You know, we, we, we know different people have different vulnerabilities. And so, you know, all asthma is not the same. Uh, and then we also know that 
different people have different risk tolerances, and some people are willing to take quite large risks ar around their health, and other people are not. And so uh, I guess it's really going to be up to the primary care physician, and hopefully if they, they know the patient well and you know, understand the history of their illness, to decide together what is really uh, the, the right approach. And, and so maybe during an outbreak, the risk would be considered too high, but at baseline, it would be considered okay. But that's, again, going to depend on the patient's vulnerability and risk tolerance, and it's really going to be uh, a conversation between uh, the patient and the healthcare provider, and the answer, I think, is going to be different each time depending on the situation. Mark, um, before we started, we were sort of wondering what employee um, health policies around that might be and health authorities and things. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, we are making some accommodations for for people that have conditions like this or, or you know, following the recommendations of their doctors. Um, but, you know, we don't see it as a blanket public health recommendation that, you know, people with asthma uh, or, or people with other respiratory conditions can't, um, you know, be in environments where there could be COVID or, or even treat people with COVID with the right personal protective equipment. Um, you know, that this is the point of the COVID safety plans is they're meant to protect everybody. Um, you, you know, all of the different measures that are in place are also meant to protect vulnerable people. And, and we hope that those measures um, are sufficient for most people. But again, you know, some people have different vulnerabilities and different risk tolerances. And so, so they, they may find those to be, um, you know, they, they may want additional measures. And can I just add one thing, which is that, um, that what this brings up for me is, again, the reminder that whatever we do, we're doing it for the medium term. So that's the other thing about these being off for work. For how long? In what situation? Because, again, COVID-19, we're going to be living with COVID-19 for a long time to come. So whatever protective measures we put in place for ourselves or for our patients, they're probably going to be doing it for a long time. And... Um, and there may be some things that people, some measures people want to take during very, very high community levels of community transmission, which actually we hope to prevent. We hope not to have very high levels of community transmission. So the, the widespread testing, the, the staying at home when you're sick policies and really, really strong contact tracing are all trying to make sure that we don't have that level of community transmission where we need to take those quite extreme measures. And Dr. Lucision, you, you mentioned this return to work plan. One of the most popular questions right now is, is COVID spreading through the ventilation systems? Is that something that's being taken into account in these return to work plans? Um, uh, I mean, I guess the only real time when you would have to consider the ventilation system is if you are performing aerosol generating medical procedures in your clinical area. And so then you, you might have to consider things around ventilation. But uh, in general, uh, although like David was saying at the beginning, it is theoretically possible for respiratory droplet to uh, become aerosolized every once in a while and move through a, a ventilation system. You know, that is not how we see cases of COVID transmitted in BC. Uh, we know how most of the cases uh, get COVID, and we know it's from close, prolonged contact, usually face-to-face -face contact um, or, you know, household living together contact um, with the cases. So, um, you know, we don't think there are specific things you need to do around ventilation uh, with the exception of certain, you know, medical procedures. Two, two other things I'd add to that is the true airborne diseases in susceptible populations like measles and TB, 
have a much higher reproductive number than what we see with these droplet transmitted things. I'm talking 8, 10, 12, and we're, we're dealing with a reproductive number of 2 or 3 under natural circumstances for this. So that doesn't fit, um, for sure. And the other thing is that even if in physics there's a distribution of particle sizes and a small tail of that distribution has particles that can aerosolize, that's probably too small a tail of the distribution to represent an infectious dose for the average person receiving it. So again, it's the clinical and epidemiological observation that counts, not the physics theory. So Dr. Patrick, I'm going to direct the next question at you, if that's okay. The, um, the question is about, should doctors be limiting the size of our bubbles? Uh, should we be seeing fewer patients? And, and I'll, I'll lump that in with another question. Are, are we seeing cases of physicians contracting COVID in BC? Um, I, I'll, I'll let my colleagues chime in on part of that, but first of all, I think all of us are still encouraged to uh, limit the size of our personal bubbles. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of this. I mean, yes, we can expand our bubbles to a certain extent, but if you double your bubble, you actually don't just double your contacts. If you think about it in terms of the number of relationships, you actually increase it uh, a little more rapidly than that. Um, so, so, so it's a good idea for all of us, physicians or non-physicians, to uh, keep a limit there. When it comes down to our workplace and practices, of course, in the workplace, we're going to want to observe all of the uh, the, um, the, uh, the 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 approaches that uh, that Mark has mentioned. That essentially, we want to you know keep that distance with the patient if we can. If we can't, because of the procedure we're doing. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll wear a, a non-surgical mask. Um, if we have to do something where we might be at risk of getting droplets from them, then yes, we can use the PPE um, close on. But that person is not becoming part of your bubble. You're actually practicing those measures because that person's not part of your bubble. So in a way, yeah, those of us who are going out to work are going to see more people, but we're still trying to limit that intimate close contact bubble that we have. Would anybody yeah, yeah. In, in, in general, we don't think that healthcare workers are at higher risk of getting COVID. And, you know, that, that's because of, um, you know, the, the safety plans that have been put in place and the personal protective equipment that we use and that we sort of acknowledge the risk of COVID and thus take, take steps to, um, to kind of a, to prevent it. Uh, I think the situations where doctors and everybody else are more at risk of getting COVID is in the situations where they're not using those those measures or previously they weren't and so there was risks in the community uh, that, and we weren't doing anything to protect it. And now hopefully these COVID safety plans will help us be protected in the community um, and we're already kind of protected at work. Uh, and, and I just really like to strengthen that comment because it is part of the public discourse, the risk to healthcare workers. And when you look at data around risk to healthcare workers, one of the things, for example, that happens is, is in our epidemiological data, uh, if we name someone as a healthcare worker, the assumption is that that healthcare worker acquired it in the workplace. Um, uh, but in fact, in British Columbia, if you remember, during the peak, we were actually limiting testing largely to healthcare workers. And so we need to look at where, um, where individuals were getting infected. And, and certainly, um, with the safety, um, with the COVID safety plans, as well as, as engineering and personal protective and, and patient placement, we actually do see that those work. When you look at Wuhan, there were, there was an increased risk of transmission to healthcare workers until the epidemic was recognized. And then once it was recognized, then it was a community-level transmission. And I actually think that's really important for us to remember. Um, and when we have seen clusters in healthcare, 
uh, especially in places like youth care, it, it often transmission occurred among healthcare workers. So everybody took the precautions that they needed to take, then they hung out and had potato chips in the lunchroom together. So um, it's really the same conditions as in any other office. And um, and I think that's, that's um, actually really quite important, although I love the pot banging at 7 o'clock at night. It's my favorite part of the day. Um, I do think that, um, that we have to um, remember that the reason we put these measures in place is to keep healthcare workers safe and um, in the workplace, and that that these measures are evidence based on our proving to work. So the next question I'm going to leave open because I'm not really sure who who knows this virus best, and and uh, I'll, I'll put a few of the questions together. So the questions about after COVID, after a patient has had COVID, and what is life like after that? So who's at risk of getting sequelae? Uh, what kind of sequelae do we see? And uh, if they get reinfected, is it going to be worse, worse than the original infection? I can start with that. Um, we have a group of colleagues out of VGH and St. Paul's Hospital and now expanding to Fraser who are beginning to see people in follow-up who've been hospitalized. Um, clearly, they're worried about people who are hospitalized, um, quite breathless, significant pneumonia in critical care. And the concern where they're following people up is, um, is there some ongoing pulmonary fibrosis? How, how long are, are there going to be uh, ongoing problems with uh, cardiac dysfunction? Uh, and what kind of issues might, might there be with renal dysfunction? Because those have all been reported in the hospital setting. This doesn't make COVID-19 entirely unique as a source of viral or community-acquired pneumonia. It's not uncommon to have lasting pulmonary dysfunction after other causes of pneumonia as well. So we're learning more about it. Uh, last I heard, I think a couple of hundred people have been followed up in these clinics, and they're doing um, uh, pulmonary function tests and echoes and things to see uh, at what rate uh, we see recovery of pulmonary and cardiac function um, following this. But it's still early days. We, we've obviously followed no one out for a year, um, and um, I think the, uh, the rate of follow-up uh, for these folks is pretty high uh, compared to other people who might have been hospitalized in the past with uh, pneumonia. And, and I think the second part of that question was about reinfections. And we don't think we've really seen reinfections. We've seen people test positive again uh, months after they, you know, or weeks after they had initially tested positive. But that's uh, simply because the virus can kind of stay in cells in the nasopharynx for, for many, many months. Those cells don't turn over uh, very long. And in some people, particularly hospitalized patients, they can really shed that virus for a long time. And um, in other countries where they've looked at those, you know, repositives is what they call them, uh, they have not contributed significantly to uh, any transmission. So we haven't seen a lot of reinfections and, um, you know, we'll have to see what, what happens with immunity and whether, you know, as years go on, whether we do see infect reinfections, but we haven't really seen them yet. David Naylor chairs the, the National Immunity Task Force, and we were on the phone with him last week, and he echoed exactly what Mark said, that everybody's looking for evidence of reinfection. Um, nobody's aware of any clear-cut cases, and I would extend that, you know, globally from, from BC. Uh, but Ina and, and Mel Cratchton in the BCCDC Public Health Lab are, have also set up a system so that if we were to see someone with, uh, with what appears to be a, a new infection who has previously been tested or previously been hospitalized, we'll know about it. So, so we're well set up to pick it up, um, but so far, nothing. Yes, and I would add to that that 
for uh, for all of the cases that have been reported so far in the literature of people testing positive again after a previous confirmed infection. And uh, as uh, Mark mentioned here in DC, if someone has tested positive uh, again, uh, you know, weeks a month after initial uh, initial confirmation, we've never seen any conclusive evidence that uh, that virus is new, uh, and also not that that virus is infectious. So while you know it is possible to pick it up again, as uh, you know everyone has mentioned, people can continue shedding it for a really long time. And not only do they shed virus, they can continue shedding parts of the virus, and that's really what they're looking for uh, in our testing. So you know, if they're picking up a bit of a virus, it doesn't mean that the person is infectious again or had a new infection. All right, so we'll carry on with the next top question. If there's closure of U.S. border for land travel, why are the flights still coming in? Why aren't they restricting air travel from the U.S. Uh, into specifically BC, uh, Dr. Gustafson, or uh, perhaps you know about why not for the rest of Canada? So the, re the restriction um, at the borders, both at the land borders and the uh, airline borders, are actually the same. Um, so there isn't a difference between those restrictions. That people are still coming through the land borders if they're essential workers, if they are uh, providing their essential service. So really the restriction is the reason for which you may or may not come to Canada. Um, and those restrictions apply equally to the land borders and to the um, to airline borders, and they are in place throughout Canada. Um, and I'm sorry, I did I forget what was the last part of the question. And that that was it for okay. BC or the rest of Canada. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's, it's, so that's federally regulated, and it's the same throughout Canada. And I think the other the other people who can travel are Canadian nationals who are in other parts of the world, and so they can come back to Canada through the United States, either through the land border or the air border, because Canadians are allowed to do that. Yeah, and to go to Europe. So and so, really, the the um, the purpose of um, of the current measures, which I think are quite good, is to they have drastically removed the volume of people coming through. Um, and people who do come through are required to quarantine for 14 days. Um, and, and, but it, there, there, has, there isn't a complete closure of the border. So uh, there is a question specifically related to that. If somebody came from Ontario or from Montreal to BC, uh, would you hope that they do 14 days self-isolation, recognizing that that's not currently required, but would you recommend it? So at the moment, um, actually, the the epidemic is quite well controlled throughout Canada. Uh, cases are declining throughout Canada and have declined quite significantly throughout Canada. So I would say that that self-isolation for 14 days for someone who's coming from another part of Canada, not a known contact of, uh, of uh, uh, a, a COVID case and not from a high-risk area, is not, certainly not, not required. I do think it's a really important thing to self-monitor for symptoms, especially if you're from a community that's still experiencing COVID transmission. Um, there's the, the vast, the, a lot of the benefit can be gotten from self-monitoring for symptoms, from avoiding unnecessary contact, and immediately self-isolating if you do develop symptoms. Right. So um, I believe this one perhaps uh, is best for uh, Dr. Lecision. So as daycares and camps are opening, uh, what do you do if a sick child calls a family practitioner and says uh, they've got symptoms but we don't want to be tested? What would you recommend for them? I think in general kids do develop a lot of these symptoms and we are going to have to have a bit of a low threshold for testing. Um, now, of course, if 
parents don't want their kid tested. I'm not exactly sure why they're calling, <laughs> but because uh, they are calling for advice, I think we do have to try to encourage people to be tested because I think it removes a lot of the questions that are out there and the stress that will happen amongst the teachers and the other staff and the other parents and the other kids. And so, you know, I, I think we do have to try to encourage testing. Now, if, if people won't a test, then you have to decide what advice you're going to give them. And if they have symptoms that are really consistent with COVID, then we would recommend that you have them isolate as if they had COVID. So 10 days, you know, until symptoms resolve and, and or symptoms improve and fever resolves. Now, if they really truly have mild symptoms, um, then you could have them, you know, isolate until their symptoms improve and they feel well enough to return. But, um, but uh, I think we, you know, in this time, people have to try to encourage testing. And I'd echo what Reka said earlier on, sick people stay home, that's fundamental. So Dr. Secker, I have a question for you. Home rapid antigen testing, is it being assessed? This is a question from Dr. Paul Mackey, and, and he's wondering if there's a place for home testing in perhaps managing school attendance. Um, so generally speaking, uh, any kind of home testing, uh, antigen testing, antibody testing, um, it's uh, very difficult to, uh, you know, quality assure something like that because most of the time people who perform the testing are not, uh, you know, well trained in administering the test. You know, there is a lot of variability in uh, how they, you know, obtain a sample and uh, results tend to be much less reliable than with uh, proper laboratory testing. So in terms of antigen uh, testing, there have been studies uh, in other parts of the world that looked at uh, the comparative sensitivity of antigen tests relative to uh, PCR tests that we do in the labs, and uh, they are uh, less sensitive. Um, you know, perhaps in someone who is very severely symptomatic, uh, the test is likely to you know, pick, pick up the virus, but in someone who is only mildly symptomatic, and I would imagine that if you're talking about home uh, antigen testing, that will be mostly for people who are not sick enough to present the hospital. In those cases, it's likely that the test will result in a false negative. And uh, I would think that it's not something that you would actually want to have in, uh, you know, in, a, pand in a pandemic scenario, because you, know, you don't want to provide this false reassurance to someone who may actually be uh, a COVID case. Uh, so right now, while you know, we don't we don't use antigen testing in BC. Uh, we haven't had uh, too many evaluations of any antigen kits. Um, you know, depending on what happens in the future, you know, like you know, new types of tests come out. You know, like you know, that that may change. But right now, there isn't anything that uh, you know we would feel comfortable recommending to use uh, at home or in a clinic. Uh, you know, no antigen testing. All right, thank you. So just keeping an eye on the clock, we've got about 20 minutes left, so in about 10 minutes I'm going to ask uh, to wrap up, and then we'll do a round of rapid-fire thumbs-up, thumbs-down question to, to end it. So for, for those astute observers who are seeing questions disappearing that we haven't addressed, I'm saving them for, for the end. So um, will it be um, advisable for all people to have flu vaccines in the fall? Is everybody going to be getting a free flu shot in the fall? Um, Dr. Gustafson, you want to start with that one? Well, we always recommend that everybody receive a who's uh, who, uh, uh, and we always recommend that a flu vaccine be taken by everybody. It is an extremely good uh, um, way of, in fact, our, our best way of preventing influenza. I do think there is an additional motivation for taking the flu vaccine this year, which is that we really want to remove 
noise from the respiratory infection season. In other words, we want to make sure that you're protected against respiratory viruses that aren't COVID because there are significant consequences to you uh, uh, for uh, of any respiratory infection. You, we will recommend that you get tested. We will recommend that you isolate until you, um, until you uh, uh, find out the result of that test. So it is actually an additional uh, burden on you as an individual. It's also an additional burden on the healthcare system. We are trying to plan for uh, potential surges uh, that the healthcare system needs to manage. And again, it's our best protection against influenza, which of course is also a severe respiratory infection that affects uh, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes young people, but by and large the elderly and those with chronic medical conditions. So absolutely, influenza vaccine is, is very strongly recommended every season and in particular this season. And um, what are the plans to keep our long-term care residential facilities safe this upcoming season? I'll leave that one open. Um, well, I mean, much like the entire healthcare system, the long-term care sector has really learned a lot during COVID. Um, we've, you know, we have seen some deficiencies in infection prevention and control at those facilities, and we've done a lot to try to strengthen it. Um, we've put, um, you know, various policies in place, like putting people into quarantine for 14 days in a single room as they enter the long-term care facility, either from acute care or from the community. So, you know, we have new policies that are in place that we, we hope will, will help prevent outbreaks and help mitigate outbreaks if they do occur. Um, the part that I think is still, um, still a bit of a challenge in long-term care it is around the staff and uh, because this illness is so mild in so many people that it, it's kind of easy uh, to come to work with mild symptoms and then to transmit it in the staff room and then eventually, um, you know, it becomes difficult to manage. And so that, that's the part that we really have to kind of work on. And there are now screening procedures in place at long-term care facilities to make sure that staff are screened every day for symptoms and, and, and things like that. And so, so we hope these measures will, will help. But the reality is also that the people in these facilities are very vulnerable, um, both you know to having serious disease, but also to acquiring the disease. And so, um, so, so, so it is hard to completely prevent it. But um, we we think that sector has learned a lot as well. And just to follow up on that, Dr. Lecision, could you talk a little bit about some of our other vulnerable communities? Uh, indigenous communities are being asked about uh, uh, the homeless, perhaps. Yeah, we, we well maybe I'll talk about the kind of inner city populations first. We we took a pretty aggressive approach to looking for COVID cases in the inner city because we knew the populations there were very vulnerable. They live in very um, you know congested housing environments and and might not seek testing. And so we did a lot of sort of outreach testing in those environments. And um, we actually did not detect a lot of COVID in you know for instance the downtown east side of Vancouver, despite kind of having a greater testing rate in that neighborhood than we had in, in other neighborhoods in Vancouver. Um, but we, we developed a lot of ways to kind of mitigate cases if we had them. We were worked with BC Housing to have kind of specific hotels where we could house people who might have been exposed or might be cases at different hotels. And, and so we, we developed a system for doing that. We're still using those systems now. Um, and so, you know, we think that will be a strategy to help um, those communities in future waves. Um, and then similarly with First Nations communities, we haven't seen high rates of COVID uh, in those communities. Um, 
And, uh, you know, that might be similar to the reasons why we haven't seen high rates of COVID in the north or in, uh, you know, on, on Vancouver Island. You know, I think a lot of our initial cases here were from importations related to travel and related to then the density of the urban environment. And so we haven't seen the same number of cases in those smaller and more remote communities. But we do have plans, you know, if people are exposed and then, you know, might need medical care to bring them down uh, closer to care much sooner than we would in other communities because we know people can deteriorate fast and then transport can be difficult. Um, so we have plans for that, you know, the same arrangements with kind of hotels that we have. Uh, for the inner city, we've also used around First Nations communities to keep them from having to travel back home when they might have been exposed and things like that. Things like that. Uh, there is still some challenge with the really remote First Nations and how they would get tested, though, because some of them are not near, um, you know, facilities where they could be tested, and it's difficult to fly out the samples and then get results in, in time. And so the First Nations Health Authority is working to kind of develop ways of getting testing in community in some of these more remote First Nations, but uh, there, there are barriers to doing this still. And just, just to add to that, as, as Dr. Lucicia said, we haven't had significant COVID in our remote and indigenous communities. There was one. There was one outbreak in British Columbia in such a community. I've had a chance to visit that community. And, and I, I would say one of the things that, that was interesting for me is to learn how, the, because we know how to stop transmission in a small community where you can actually communicate with everyone and can take measures as a community, actually very successfully controlled. So I thought that was something that, uh, that I learned. And, uh, and uh, in particular, seeing the presence of a family doctor in a community like that and the ability to communicate and test and, and really come together to respond to this was um, actually a very impressive response. And again, it's, um, there haven't been very many, but, uh, but it, it can also be a real um, uh, because the kind of measures that we have to control COVID-19, which is really only, only um, uh, uh, public health measures, isolate, testing, isolation, and, and quarantine of contacts, uh, uh, it is something that is possible to control in those settings. Absolutely want to prevent it, but with the measures that Mark mentioned and through testing, uh, but, it, that, but control is in fact what's possible. And Dr. Sekharov, there's a question about um, equivalency of accuracy of the nasal pharyngeal swab if, if we just do a nose swab as opposed to the nasal pharyngeal swab. So can you comment on that? And do you think that's going to change policy in BC at all? So uh, the best validated sample type from the upper respiratory tract has been the nasal pharyngeal swab. Uh, and uh, there have been some studies that uh, looked at whether or not the nasal swab uh, will compare uh, in sensitivity to that. Uh, what we see so far is that, uh, you know, if someone collects, you know, perhaps not sort of, you know, the way outside navies, but uh, kind of more like a mid-turbinate scope, uh, that does produce, uh, you know, reasonable results. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, actually I don't know how often, but I've heard stories of uh, people not really being able to, you know, push through to the true native things and, you know, having to stop, uh, you know, sort of closer to the navies, you know, just because of uh, kind of, you know, physical maybe, you know, obstructions um, in someone's nose. And, uh, you know, as long as it's a misturbinate, uh, we have uh, some evidence to say that uh, it's, uh, you know, it is still sensitive. But uh, anything that 
really close to the entrance of the nose, like a true nasal swab, uh, that we just don't really have much data on. And, um, you know, we'll see, I guess, again, you know, like how things change as the epidemic evolves. But uh, for now, we still recommend uh, native pharyngeal as the optimal uh, sample size. And uh, if that is not possible, then misturbinous swab. And uh, one thing to add to that, though, is that considering that this epidemic is, you know, really hitting worldwide, um, there are worldwide shortages of swabs that are available uh, for sampling. And, uh, you know, we are actively trying to see whether different uh, specimen types that are not swab reliant uh, can be validated. So in the future, again, depending on how things look, we may have to switch to something entirely different, uh, you know, like a gargle sample or something along those lines. Thank you. So uh, we're almost out of time. So how about one last question? I'll direct this to uh, Dr. Lecision, and then, and then I'll ask for your pearls, and then we can do our thumbs up, thumbs down. So uh, Dr. Lecision, will the testing centers continue to remain open in VCH and, and do you know about across the province, uh, hoping that family physicians don't have to test in their offices? And, and this particular comment just says it's great. We don't have to worry about seeing symptomatic patients in, in their waiting rooms, and they're sending them to me in urgent care, which is, which is fine because we've got the PPE for it. Yeah, I mean, I think we will continue to use uh, testing centers. Um, I mean, we would still encourage family doctors to test. We think that is a good place for you know patients to be tested. I think, but but uh, we will continue to have testing centers probably at the hospitals like we have been having, and then to use the the new urgent and primary care centers. They have been very useful uh, to do a lot of the testing too. So I, I think we've seen the value of that, and so we will continue it. So, Mark, do you want to carry on and um, perhaps give us a, a pearl in, in, in a minute or, or less, and then and then we'll go around the panel once again, and then and then I'll wrap up. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would just kind of start or finish back where we sort of started, and and uh, you know we are at a time of low transmission now, and it, it is time to to get our COVID safety plans ready and to feel comfortable seeing people in the office again. I think um, it's safe to do it now, and it's safe to kind of get the procedure get the procedures down because what we would like to see, you know, in the second, third, fourth wave is, is basically that we don't have to take the aggressive measures that we did during the first wave because we know how to do it now. And so those other waves will come in very slowly and we won't have to cancel a whole bunch of surgeries. We won't have to uh, divert people from here. We don't have to shut everything down because we now know how to operate in this new normal. And so uh, I think um, that's, that's the work we need to do right now. Dr. Gustafson. Well, similar, I think, to what Mark was saying is that um, we are not only at a time of low transmission, but we're also at a time where we've learned a great deal. And uh, I'd just like to remind everybody that, that you know, we had over 13 million cases, and while there are science, science experiments that show you small droplets um, or worrying about, about the exceptions, the common things are common. This is an infection that, that um, is transmitted through the droplet route, uh, it disproportionately affects the elderly and those that, uh, with, um, with uh, uh, underlying medical conditions, and we want to do everything we can to protect those populations, um, and case testing, case and contact management work. And the reason I, I'm, I'm stressing that is because it's really important that we move to those spe specific interventions that prevent this disease, because some of the very broad interventions we put this in place actually have harm. And you as primary care providers know more than anyone else. Your questions reflected it. Um, we need to screen uh, for other conditions. We need to immunize. People need to 
make a living, connect with their loved ones. There are, there, there are so many other aspects of wellness that, um, that we need, still need to do um, with a new normal, with different prevention measures, measures in place, but the social determinants of health um, are still the same. And, um, and I think your questions reflected that, and I really want to thank you for thinking about those things. Thank you. Dr. Sekharov. Um, I guess I would like to say that, uh, you know, we do want to test, uh, you know, like any, uh, people who do uh, fit the uh, testing criteria and we have the capacity to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we want to encourage the testing as well. Um, if, if the test result is positive or is negative, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it's a reliable test, and uh, you know I also want to I guess highlight that you know if a test result is negative, then uh, you know like that uh, should be considered, and uh, you know other causes of illness should be investigated. Uh, and um, you know, we have seen some cases where uh, people you know kind of didn't believe the negative result, and uh, you know continued looking for COVID uh, while not looking for something else, and something else might have been infection play. And I uh, want people to remind that. Uh, while COVID is, uh, you know, clearly um, a, a, a big, um, it's going to be a big illness in the coming months, but uh, other diseases are still out there, still at play, and uh, we don't want to forget about them as well. And Dr. Patrick? Simon, if I may, I noticed there's a couple of questions that relate to therapeutics, so I'll say four things about that that are new. Um, one is the question itself addressed, you know, are anticoagulants part of care in critically ill hospital patients in ICU or severely ill who might be transferred? Yes, enoxaparin is currently recommended by the BC Therapeutics uh, Committee. So that question, people are concerned about that, that uh, thrombosis potential. Secondly, although it's an incremental improvement that use of dexamethasone or similarly dosed corticosteroids in those same severely ill patients, you know, breathless at risk of ventilation, uh, is also um, standard of care now following the recovery trial. Remember that trial showed that it reduced mortality of uh, ventilated patients from 40% to 28%, which is an incremental improvement I'd take if I was intubated, I think. And then the other two points I wanted to make was early on, there was a lot of confusion about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. No problem with using them uh, if people are on them for, for other reasons. And because this is an, an ACE2 receptor binding uh, virus, there was a lot of concern about uh, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, and they're fine. The observational studies are actually that people seem to do better observationally. That's not e evidence of benefit, but there's no reason to take people off those drugs if they're hospitalized with, um, with COVID. Apart from that, I'd say uh, good work to um, all of you in terms of frontline uh, practitioners. Uh, let's, as Bonnie says, uh, make sure that we don't waste our efforts so far and that we keep it up uh, in different ways. Um, I'm going to go out there and think about um, different ways to communicate with my 20-something-year-old uh, daughter about nightlife and um, hope that you do the same. All right, so we've got a couple of minutes left, so, left, so uh, all that I ask for your response is thumbs up, thumbs down, and uh, let's start. One question was, should we buy a $65,000 UV filter for our clinic to reduce the spread of COVID? I'm going to vote on that too. Um, will there be a contact tracing app widespread in use in BC anytime soon? Doesn't look like it. Will we have, oh, and Mark, maybe, maybe. Uh, will we have enough flu shots in the fall, yes or no? <laughs> 
And uh, will we be giving the flu shots earlier in the fall this year? Maybe, maybe not. Will we have enough PPE, N95 masks, surgical masks? <laughs> okay. And um, should we expect schools to open full-time, five days a week, full capacity in September? Can we expect or hope? <laughs> <laughs> the word was expect, so we'll move on. Is it safe for family doctors to do a strep throat swab in their clinics if they're wearing PPE? And uh, should family doctors be wearing masks for all patients for all visits, assuming they're doing pre-visit pre screening, not having uh, respiratory symptom patients? Should they be wearing masks for all patients? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Um, maybe, and, not maybe not. Maybe your own personal one if you want to show, show, show regard for your patient, but not a, not a surgical mask. All right. Is it safe to go to a dental office for a routine cleaning right now? I'm breathing a sigh of relief because I have clean teeth now. Um, do any of you know, this is a very popular question, will MSP be continuing to support telehealth in the long term? I had a conversation with uh, somebody from the Doctors of BC Tariffs Committee, and uh, I think telehealth is likely to continue uh, for some time because it's definitely a way many people are being, being seen. It's not going to stop. The only concern uh, the Tariffs Committee had was uh, I think there had been a limit on you know how you can have, you can bump up against billing for too many people in a day, and that had been lifted. They were concerned that that might might need to be reimposed, but they did. But the telehealth seems to be living on for a while yet. Mark, you seem to. Oh, I just I just think there's a lot of benefit to telehealth, and we've been trying to get the system to use telehealth for so long, and so I think telehealth will be here to stay in some way. I just have to find the right balance of telehealth and in-person health. All right, and last question, thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you know, will the Alaska loophole be closing soon? Silence, no comment. No, no politicians here. Oh, we got thumbs down. All right, well, thank you so much. I would love to continue with the thumbs up, thumbs down for hours, but we've reached our hour and a half limit, and I have some closing remarks to, to say. So I, uh, first of all, thank you sincerely to all of you on the panel, uh, Dr. Patrick, Dr. Gustafson, Dr. Sekarov, and Dr. Lecision. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time, uh, so much time for the planning of this, for the pre-check-in and for tonight as well. And I'm sure everyone's appreciated it. And there are thank you comments in the Slido as well. Um, I also want to acknowledge there's 43 people working behind the scenes at UBC CPD. Uh, Stephanie Amayamu, who's on the call now, Judy Chen, Desiree Turios, Kathy Gao, Steph Din, Kate Maffin, Yan Chow, Vivian Lam, Nina Zork, Lindsay Callan, Michelle Bazan, Fanny McNeil, Jenny Barrows, and the list goes on and on and on. With others, uh, we would not have had such a smooth webinar. We wouldn't have had made it to 22 outstanding and very popular webinars. Uh, with attendees like you. So thank you for joining us and thank you to the team who made this uh, possible. Please do open your evaluation forms. The link is in the email. If you want your study credit uh, to get your attendance counted, uh, please open those emails, fill out those forms, and please send in the submission of the evaluation. Let us know how we did. Let us know how we can do better. Let us know if there's other topics you'd like to see. Uh, and you can, once you submit that, you are qualified and eligible for your 1.5 main pro credit. Finally, um, there will be a link to our very valued uh, COVID-19 resource hub, as well as a newer resource that's coming out. We will send you an email about that when we send the report in the summary. It's called REACT, and it's available to answer questions. Uh, there's several questions still on the list. I'm sorry we didn't get to them. Uh, we tried to do as many as we could, but you can now go on to REACT. We'll send you the link. You can ask your questions there as well. Um, that is uh, it for us. If you have other questions, other podcasts you want to see, I did put the link in the chat as well, cpd, ubccpd.ca slash COVID-19 slash archive, and I'll put that up one last time.
And that's Your all that I have to say, and we're right at 8 o'clock. So thank you again to our panelists. Thank you to you for attending. Thanks to everyone. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 